Today on the show, Horror Month marches on. We have The Fanatic from 2019 and Soul Survivors from 2001. Alright everyone, welcome to Brandon at Random Reviews. I am your host, Brandon Griffiths. Thank you for tuning in, I do appreciate it. I'd like to talk to you guys about what goes into these bad movie episodes, you know, just a little brief overview of what my decision-making process is in trying to pick a movie because you might just think to yourself, oh, well, you just pick a bad movie and that's it, you know? But it's it's a little more difficult than that because there are varying degrees of shittiness and if I'm going to cover it on the podcast, I want it to be pretty shitty and I but I don't want it to be so ridiculously shitty that it's like, yeah, okay, we're just doing this to be ridiculous now. We're just... We're just trying to be shitty movies. And so what I do is I I decide, you know, okay, I need to make a couple of decisions, pick a couple of bad movies, and, you know, I'll I'll Google it. I'll look around, see what there is. You know, like this month I've got the horror episodes, so I'm kind of trying to find stuff more in that vein. It's not necessarily all the way in, but, you know, as much as I can. So it basically just... The movie has to be pretty shitty across the board on rating websites, and I'll uh, I'll look for somewhere in the fours on IMDb and somewhere below a 10% on Rotten Tomatoes. I find that with the IMDb thing, if you find anything above a four, you get into territory where it's like, it's it's too good of a movie to talk about for being a bad movie. You know, if it's, if it's like in the fives or sixes, you know, I've seen fives and sixes that I legitimately enjoyed. It, it's just a luck of the draw kind of thing. But when you get down into the fours, it's guaranteed to be bad. And the best thing is with fours is it's like, you don't get the people that are, like, piling on. Like, okay, if, if you get a movie, like, okay, for instance, the DC movies. You know, there's a lot of criticism about DC fans and basically just trying to turn the tides when reviews are bad on their movies. And they'll just go in and they'll, they'll rate something 10 out of 10 when it's really just okay. You know, I mean, like, perfect example. Zack Snyder's Justice League was a solid movie that was four fucking hours long. And it is rated in the eights on IMDb, which is unacceptable to me. Like, I liked the movie quite a bit, actually. And it was still, it deserved to be in, like, the mid-sevens. You know, 7.5 would have been about good for me on that movie. And that's just kind of the way it is. It always shakes out. But anyway, you'll get that happening with a lot of different movies. You know, you'll get a lot of people that want to come in and white knight and fucking talk about how good the movie. They're like, oh, this movie gets a lot of flack. I think it's pretty good you know and and it's just like yeah okay whatever buddy and then you get the ones where they're like below a four and they are so bad that it's like what are we doing here what what is this you know what I mean it's not even a movie that anybody in this person's life would have told them was good you know what I mean I I started watching one called sharks of the corn I think it was called sharks of the corn and it was about this you know like it was set up originally to be that there were actually sharks in the corn but it was like 
like really shitty special effects and all this stuff as you might expect and then you get like you know it turns out that it's really this guy that's really into sharks and you know he's doing all of the killing that the sharks are accused of doing and I watched like 15 minutes of it and I was like yep nope this is too dumb this is too much I wanted it to be fun but not quite this much fun and so that's kind of where I, I land on that stuff and you know obviously there are movies that I've seen before that I just know I don't need them to pass any kind of rigorous ratings tests on any of this stuff because realistically I know that Batman and Robin is a bad movie that I want to do an episode on and I'll probably do that when the time comes but as of right now you know it's like I, I already know I don't know exactly what Batman and Robin has on IMDb or Rotten Tomatoes I just know that it's a bad movie and that it's got plenty of shit for me to make fun of and it's just it's terrific so let's get right into the first movie which is called The Fanatic that was released on August 30th 2019 directed by William F. Durst and you may think to yourself gosh that sounds like a respectable director's name no wrong incorrect Okay, William F. Durst, through my deceptive wording, it's actually Fred Durst from Limp Biscuit who directed this movie, and I didn't realize it until the opening credits of the movie, and it was fucking amazing that I was like, holy shit, I picked this movie thinking it was going to be bad, but I didn't know it would be Fred Durst bad. And so, Fred Durst has four credits for directing to his name in his filmography. He has The Education of Charlie Banks, which was apparently a pretty solid movie. It had Jesse Eisenberg in it. He did something called The Long Shots and E-Harmony. And then, of course, he did this movie, The Fanatic. He also co-wrote the screenplay for The Fanatic with a guy named David Beekerman. And, you know, some of the producers, Daniel Grodnick, Oscar Generale... I guess. Bill Kenwright. The score was done by Gary Hickison and John Swihart. Okay, I guess. This movie features John Travolta in the lead role, and he plays the character Moose. And, you know, I've talked about Mr. Travolta on my Pulp Fiction episode. You know, he was in that movie. He was in Grease, Swordfish, Get Shorty, the Look Who's Talking movies that were all terrible. You know, he's he's been in a, quite a lot of shit. He's, he's been in a lot. And he, alongside him, is Devin Sawa, who plays the character Hunter Dunbar. Devin Sawa was kind a bit of a child star. You know, he is known for being in, like, Final Destination, but before that, in the 90s, he was in a bunch of teen or kid movies, like The Little Giants, Casper, Now and Then, Wild America, Idle Hands, which was actually later. And then he also played Stan in the Eminem video, like the music video for the song Stan by Eminem. And, you know, he, he was he played a crazed fan, which, you know, it's pretty interesting looking back based on this movie. Because, I mean, this movie is called The Fanatic. I bet you can guess what it's about. Then some of the other actors that don't really have much for notable filmographies. Anna Golja plays Leah. Jacob Grodnick plays Todd. James Paxton plays Slim, who is... James Paxton is actually Bill Paxton, the late Bill Paxton's son. And then Denny Mendez plays Amanda. So basic plot synopsis here. We've got a man who is presumably supposed to be on the autism spectrum begins exhibiting dangerous obsessive behavior toward a favorite celebrity. Yepers, that's what we're dealing with. Okay, there is... 
there's like an overarching voiceover narrator in this movie. And it's, it's one of the characters. I think it's the character of like Leah and she keeps, it's, it's like wholly unnecessary, but she starts off the very beginning of this movie talking. And every time she talks, I'm like, couldn't, couldn't you have just put the narration on screen? Like, couldn't you have just given some credit to the audience and let them figure out what the fuck's going on? But I digress. John Travolta does look ridiculously terrible in this movie, and I hope that it was all on purpose. Although, it's honestly, everything about this feels insulting to people on the spectrum. Like, I, I just, I can't fucking imagine, but what do I know? I, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna be Mr., you know acting all sensitive about it because I, I honestly don't know. Should I be upset? I don't I don't know. But to me it it just seems like if they're if they're dead on, good for them. Okay. So he's you know, John Travolta plays a guy named Moose and he's a crazed fan and all he wants to do is collect stuff. He it's not really clear where he's getting his money from. They don't really burden the viewer with that, thank God. You know, it's just like you kind of know immediately once you see what kind of guy John Travolta is, you know where this movie's going. I mean, it's called The Fanatic and it's like it's got this dark tone to it. So it's like you know it's not a happy fanatic. And then when I uh you know, once the opening credits started, it fucking hit me like a ton of bricks. Did not know this before I started the movie, and I just happened upon this movie on Amazon Prime, and it is a Fred Durst film. I had no fucking idea. And I guess... I, only an egomaniac like Fred Durst would not see an issue with putting his own real name on this movie. I mean, honestly, if this would have been directed by literally anybody else, it might have colored my opinion of the movie in a completely different light, but it's just, with it being Fred Durst, I'm already... I'm already, like, buckling up for the shit show of my life, you know? So, I would have thought that Travolta and Sawa would have been, like, above a movie like this, and then I, I look at their filmographies as of late, and I kind of figure out why they're in this movie. It's not like they're doing much else, but whatever. So, <sighs> partial, like, at least... Fred Durst co-wrote this movie, which is another note I made during these opening credits. He he was at least a co-writer with somebody else. I didn't recognize the other name. And so we get to where it, it felt like that as Travolta was talking to himself, he was, he's doing this bit in the mirror. And it was like, I almost wanted to think he was doing a good job. But the farther into it we got, the worse it was. It was just fucking terrible. And I just, I can't wrap my head around what what he's going for here, okay? And I'll get into a little bit more about why it's such a strange choice for John Travolta to be in this movie and to play this part. I mean, he's he's certainly trying to be off-putting in this movie, and it's, it's working. I mean, he's definitely not relatable. He's not enjoyable to see on screen at all, and I'm, I'm hoping that was all on purpose. But and I, all I could think, throughout, like, the entire basic gist of what I have to talk about here today, I, I made a note that specifically said, what talentless monster could co-write and direct a film like this? Question mark. Yeah, that's, that's where we're at. So Travolta, I guess his character, like, I mean, at this point I'm like, yeah, he's definitely got to be on the spectrum, but I don't really know what, you know, what the story is or like, honestly, I'm not, I haven't been around enough autistic, like legitimately autistic people to know if that's what's typical 
typical, what's not typical, whatever. But I, I you know, I was digging into this while I was watching because, you know, it was like kind of difficult to keep my attention. But I knew that John Travolta's son had died, a, you know, a while back. And I knew that there was, it was like shrouded in controversy and that the son had like, you know, he was on the spectrum as well. And he was, you know, he had seizures and things like that. And so basically there was all this controversy about how John Travolta and Kelly Preston handled his, what was going on with him. And Travolta just thanked the almighty Scientology for uh, all their help on it. And it's like, oh God. So I realized at, at this point that I'm like, I'm watching it and I'm like, holy shit, that's what Devin Sawa looks like now. Because the last time I remember seeing him in anything, like I never saw Idle Hands and I don't remember what year that came out. But it's like, the last time I saw him was in Final Destination, the first one. And I don't know if he was, I don't remember if he dies in that movie or if he comes back in one of the sequels. I honestly, Honestly, I have no fucking idea, but that's, that's just kind of the way it is. I, I, I just, it's a little bit of a shock to the system to see somebody. It's like, I felt like I was having a bit of an existential crisis when I saw him on screen. Cause I was like, holy shit. I've been able to watch myself so closely with aging that it's not a shock to the system, but to see him all at once be that much older, it took a lot out of me. So the, uh, the whole way that these characters cross paths with each other is Devin Sawa is a, a celebrity actor, and he is doing a signing at the shop that John Travolta frequents, and John Travolta goes there to get something signed by him, and, you know, there's this whole issue with, you know, Sawa has a problem with his, his ex, and all this shit's going on, and so, like, he has to cut the signing short, and at this point, you see the shop the shop owner that you've seen earlier in the movie with Travolta interacting with him. And the shop owner is wearing a Shane Falco number 16 jersey, which is, by the way, from the movie The Replacements with Keanu Reeves and a handful of other people, Gene Hackman among others. And and I mean, it's just, it was such a weird nod. I don't know what the connection was between this, you know, this fanatic movie and the replacements i have no fucking idea but it is what it is it it was just an interesting little tidbit that i thought i'd share so this girl the girl that's actually the one that narrates the story she's the one you know after travolta's all pissed that he can't get his autograph from devon sawa he it's like he goes and he's talking to her and she's telling travolta how to find celebrities using this app you know find out where their residence is and it it is completely fucking insane and when john travolta sees the app he goes holy cow batman which it's possibly the laziest iteration i've ever heard of the holy insert words here batman thing you know and i've seen a lot of batman and i've seen a lot of references to that and i i would say if maybe he just said holy invasion of privacy batman or you know something but it's like i guess he's just he's supposed to be autistic maybe an autistic person wouldn't say that i don't have any fucking idea but it's just it was a bit much for me i i didn't i didn't enjoy the uh the holy batman thing so devon sawa 
for some reason, keeps reminding me in this movie every time you interact with him because, you know, Travolta goes to his residence and Sawa gets really fucking pissed and defensive because, you know, Travolta is there and he doesn't like it, you know? So it's like, but he's giving off this like Gerard Butler energy of like the way he's acting. It just seems like a role that Gerard Butler would do. You know what I mean? I mean, I think I don't know that Jerry Butler has fallen that far down the ladder that he would do a movie like this, but I think at some point in his career, he would definitely be on board for this. But like this whole scene with Sawa and Travolta, you know, there's a big confrontation and they're like Sawa is getting in Travolta's face and he's like here I'll give you your fucking autograph and he like and like everything about the the music cue the body language of the actors and the camera angle in this scene plays out like it's it's like a stabbing in pure darkness like it, it is just it has that level of I don't know, like, it has that that feel to it, and it's just really bizarre. And Travolta afterwards, you know, like, all it is is, like, Sawa actually, like, signs his name on Travolta's shirt, and Travolta keeps clutching at his chest, like if he was nursing a stab wound and now I'm like thinking about it and it's like, were they going for that? That, that, that was like how Travolta took it, you know, like how he, how he saw the interaction was like, you know, Devin Sawa stabbed him or something. I don't know. It, if that's it, that that's fucking stupid. Like that's really dumb. And <laughs> at this point, you know, cause this just happened. And at that point I was like, holy shit, there's a fucking hour left of this goddamn movie. And I don't get it because Travolta has multiple interactions with other characters in this movie that are like bullying him for being autistic or to, you know, for doing the things that an autistic person does. And like, honestly, I haven't, as I've mentioned, I haven't met many, but I've, I've met a handful of autistic people and I don't understand the inclination to give anybody a hard time for most things. But like, if you're going to fucking bully somebody, I don't know any, like I knew a lot of dicks in high school that bullied a lot of people, but they didn't fucking bully autistic kids. Like, are you fucking serious? You know, I mean, just, you have to be better than that, you know? It's just kind of insane to me that these people keep bullying him, and it just kind of seems like... <sighs> I, I can't help but feel like everything is just Fred Durst seeping through with his idiocy, but what can you do? And as I mentioned, you know, we keep getting the narration coming back every once in a while, and the narration should have just been scrapped, and, you know, as with other movies, it's like, it's kind of insulting to the audience. It's just, like, let the audience fill in the blanks and figure out what the fuck's going on. And this movie especially. There was nothing going on on screen that was that difficult to understand that you needed somebody to tell you, hey, this is what's happening and this is why he did this and this is that and that and the other. And it's like, eh, all right. And I, I don't understand at any point in this movie, who am I rooting for? I mean, am I on Devin Sawa's side in this movie? Like, what, what is, am I, I, I don't think I'm on Travolta's side. It doesn't seem like it. He, he's kind of becoming this unhinged psychopath and that's just kind of the way it is. But I, everybody's, everybody's just a fucking idiot or a, psychopath or a piece of shit and I don't I don't care about anybody maybe like the shop owner from the very beginning of the movie is somebody worth rooting for but I I, I don't know I never really got that far and 
and seriously, like, I, I get that stars don't have to be, like, sunshine and lollipops all the time, and it's, but it's, like, what is, what exactly is the message, you know what I mean? Like, what is, I mean, Travolta's clearly out of line with the way he's behaving, and then Sawa is painted up to be a big piece of shit as well, you know, he's got all of these issues, and he's not, I mean, he doesn't have to be super nice, but it's, like, at the same time, he has to realize, like, okay, this guy is not right in the head, you know, like, there's something off about him and I need to respond appropriately to him and that's just that's just how it that's how it plays out you know so the night of the living dead appears on the uh one of the tvs in this movie and I always notice the night of the living dead like it's on in the background of um halloween from 1978 that I just did an episode on and you know it's just it pops up in all these movies and the reason that it pops up in these movies as far as I know is because there was a lapse in copyright for the movie that basically like they didn't put a a registered trademark on the title card at the beginning of the movie and so basically that kind of forfeited all rights that they had to the imagery in the movie and so you see it used a lot like it gets used a fuck ton and it's just kind of ridiculous and then and then of course you know so Devin Sawa's got this this younger kid you know I want to say he's maybe like 10 or something he's in the car with him and they play a song by Limp Biscuit. and I looked up what are some of Limp Biscuit's shittiest records or you know shittiest songs or whatever because I was I think I listened to a couple of Limp Biscuit songs when I was younger and I I had aspirations to get into them but luckily my mom all of a sudden wanted to draw the line with you know parental advisories she wanted to to decide that I couldn't listen to music that had that in it, but I could watch a dude get his dick shot off literally in fucking RoboCop, you know, and like, okay, I guess, you know, this fair, like fair play, whatever. And so I I was never able to listen to much more of the, you know, and I think maybe my mom used it as like, I don't feel like buying you something today. So I'm going to tell you that the reason is because there's a parental advisory because like I wanted to get like a Rob Zombie CD one time, like uh, Hellbilly Deluxe, I think it was. And, you know, I thought it was really cool. And it's like Rob Zombie's not, I mean, he probably is, but like the songs I was listening to, he wasn't really saying anything, at least not anything I was paying attention to that would be considered, like my mom was worried that it was like about rape and this, that, and the other thing. And I'm like, yeah, they say the fuck word. You know what I mean? Like everybody's so fucking uptight about swearing. So they just freak out because they're saying the fuck word. And I don't give a shit. You know what I mean? I... My mom would never hesitate to swear in front of me. And that's that's what always aggravated me the most is it was like if she had been like Miss, you know, prim and proper, I, I could have gotten on board a little more with her not wanting me to listen to these CDs and stuff. But the fact that, that she wasn't like that, it, it was ridiculous. So they keep doing these these moments where it's like a transition between scenes and they have like a drawing that comes up. And they were just like, I guess what I would liken them to is what would happen is if like Vincent Van Gogh and Charles Schultz from Peanuts had a baby and that baby took a shit and then that shit was used by Fred Durst's finger paint to make the drawing. Like they're just, they're super weird. They're, they're really bizarre. I don't really understand it. I don't, I don't get what they're going for, but what can you do? I, I, I don't know. And I'm going to feel bad now if it turns out that 
the paintings that were done were done by like autistic kids or some fucking thing, but I, I sincerely doubt it. I really do. So I hate when the, at this point in the movie, it's getting pretty intense. You know, there's a lot of interactions that are very serious and they keep having this heavy bass thud going in the score. And it's like, I hate it when they like, cause I have a sound system and it's not like an amazing sound system. It's just like, it's enough that I get the surround sound when it happens in the movie, you know? And I, I love that. Like, I love when, when I'll hear the sound effects in a movie and it feels like they're behind me and beside me and stuff. So I really like that, but it's like when they do it and they, they have a score and it's like, I have to fucking turn my subwoofer off because they have it so high on the bass. It's like, fuck you. Like, I don't fucking give a shit. So it's funny. I was like, I was writing my notes and, you know, as I do, I'll just sit with my notes app open on my phone and just watch the movie and make little notes here and there and just try and remember as much as I can. And we come to this part in the movie where Travolta has broken into Sawa's house and Sawa is tied up on the bed. And when Sawa wakes up and he realizes that he is tied up, he has, it's like the old, I hate to say it, the old gag where he has a fucking, you know, something stuffed in his, in his mouth, right? It's like, there's something stuffed in there. And in most movies, for some reason, they act like you can't force that kind of thing out of your mouth with your tongue or your jaw. But it's like, in this movie, he actually spit it right out. And I was so fucking happy. I was just, I couldn't believe it, you know? So it's just like, I was just about to complain about, oh, it's going to be that old trope of like, yeah, we've got to fucking have this guy, you know, be gagged and we don't want him talking. So we're going to have him have something in his mouth and he's not going to be able to talk. And... I don't, at the beginning of this scene, when Sawa wakes up and spits the thing out of his mouth, he looks over and sees Travolta, and it looks like Travolta is dead in a pool of blood on the ground, or on the floor, I should say, and it's like, it doesn't, and like, Travolta just like, he's like, ah, you know, gotcha, and it's like, what was that for? What did, you, is that, are you trying to tell me that that's like something that Travolta's character would have been like in the mind state of like, yeah, you know what? I'll make a little joke here. It'll be funny if I pretend to be dead after tying this guy up and he's going to wake up and like start yelling for help and I'm going to be dead on the ground and it's going to be really funny. It's like, no, I don't think that's, I don't think that's a thing. But I just kept thinking to myself, I'm like, what is the moral of the story going to be? What are we doing here? Why, why is this happening? And it, I mean, the voiceover narration says, Moose didn't just cross the line. He nuked it. How poetic, likely from the man himself. I'm, I can only hope that Fred Durst himself wrote that line. The movie actually kicks it up a notch at the end. It's like in the final act, it kind of kind of gets into gear a little bit. It it only sucks like slightly less, but you know, it, it at least starts moving, it feels like. And Sawa did everything possible to John Travolta in this whole sequence. He, he fucking blows John Travolta's hand off. He, I think he stabs him. I can't remember what else he does. I didn't write shit about that down because I was kind of enamored by what was going on. But it's like, he, he just sends John Travolta packing and that's it. You know, like that's that's all he does. Like he, he tricks Travolta into letting him out of, you know, being tied up. And then he knows where he has a knife and he knows where he has a gun and all this shit. And it's like, okay, I guess that's, I mean, 
if he would have just shot Travolta and then called the police, but he doesn't, you know, like, once he gets Travolta where he wants him, he doesn't kill him, and he just fucking doesn't call the police at all, and it doesn't make any sense. But I'm, I'm still not clear at this point in the movie, who am I rooting for? Because there's nobody that I'm rooting for. And it's, I saw like a, a review of this movie that said that it was what happens when Forrest Gump meets Taxi Driver, which I'm not going to be that kind to this movie to liken it to either of those movies. But if that's what they were going for, I guess. I mean, it, it just is not, it did not resonate for me at all. And they... There's a scene earlier in the movie where when Travolta is breaking onto the property, he accidentally kills this woman who is confronting him because he gets really like, he gets cornered and he feels like compelled to attack, you know? And basically like the end of the movie, it it's, suggests that Devin Sawa is going to be blamed for that. And it's like, okay, I guess. And when all is said and done, you know, it's like Sawa gets basically taken away, you know, and he, he gets taken away by the police and, you know, he's got all this blood on him from shooting Travolta and shit. And like Travolta just kind of goes on and doesn't really get in any trouble that I could see. And it's like, what are we doing here? You know? And for as far as highlights or praise or anything in this movie, my first note was um because it was that that questionable uh the acting was just okay i mean assuming that it was what they were actually going for i guess it was all right you know i mean i wouldn't say that it that like bad acting was standing out as a problem in this movie i i guess i didn't really mind not feeling like i could root for anybody which was a a decent spin because you know it it wasn't at least the most obvious route to go, so I can respect that. And I, I feel like usually in this movie, you know, where it's like, it's basically along the same lines of like that movie, The Fan with Wesley Snipes and Robert De Niro and Cape Fear with Nick Nolte and Robert De Niro, where it's like Robert De Niro is the psychopath fan and Nick Nolte and Wesley Snipes are like the good guys that you're supposed to be rooting for. But usually it's not that much of a gray area, but I guess it was all right what they did with it. Uh, the voiceover narration, so criticism as far as I'm concerned, the voiceover narration could have been scrapped completely. We didn't, I didn't get anything out of that that really filled in any blanks for me that I needed to have filled in. And I would say that the ending was pure garbage. And I mean, obviously I've talked about other shit that I've not liked about the movie through the notes, but I mean, just, just a terrible fucking ending, really unsatisfying and really unfulfilling. Production notes and trivia. I have, I guess it's mildly interesting that Sawa played an obsessed fan in the video for the Eminem song, Stan. John Travolta supposedly took the role in this movie as a tribute to his late autistic son, Jet. As far as nuggets are concerned, the IMDb nuggets, in case you're not familiar with what I'm talking about here, these are the IMDb trivia items that are so stupid and don't make any fucking sense and should not be on IMDb trivia that I, I just have to pick apart and make fun of. So, first one. It's never revealed and is unclear why Moose's mother named him Moose. There are three possibilities. Moose may just be a nickname. Moose may have been named Moose by his mother because he is ugly or Moose's mother is a moose lover and simply decided to call her son Moose. Yep, that's that's a trivia item. That's 
pure fact right there. That's all all we need for that. So Moose saying, I can't talk too long, I got to poo, is a nod to John Travolta's earlier movie, Pulp Fiction, from 1994, which John Travolta's character in that movie, Vincent Vega, is shot and killed with a Mac-10 when he exits a bathroom. You really think that that was the connection they were trying to make? They were, they were trying to forge the connection between those two okay the runtime of the fanatic was 89 minutes the budget is unknown according to wikipedia i couldn't find anything about the budget worldwide gross to date is 3.2 thousand dollars which is not a lot by the way the imdb rating of this movie is 4.2 rotten tomato critic score 16 percent rotten tomato audience score 29 percent personal rating one out of five stars all it deserves moving on to soul survivors released on september 7th 2001 director stephen carpenter never heard of anything else he's done written by stephen carpenter produced by stokely Schaffen and neil h moritz composer for this movie uh, was Daniel Licht? Liked? I don't know. L L I C H T. No idea. Didn't make any other movies that were notable. He 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 was he did do a lot of work on the show Dexter, which apparently got him some notoriety. But that would have been after this by a long shot. Melissa Sage Miller is our lead actress in this movie. And if you're thinking, man, that's weird. I'd never heard of her ever, then you are not alone. She plays the character Cassie. She was in the movie Sorority Boys, which I guess people know about probably, and The Guardian, and Mr. Woodcock. And that's all that I could find that looked familiar for her. Casey Affleck is her co-star, and he's not in this movie as much as being second build would have you believe he is, but he plays the character Sean. He was in the movie To Die For with Nicole Kidman. He's in Chasing Amy, Goodwill Hunting. He was in the American Pie movies as, like, Kevin's older brother or something like that. He was in the Ocean's Eleven movies, and he was in a little movie called The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford on a quiet Monday afternoon while he was hanging a picture or some shit. Yeah, that's right. I go all in on the long titles because you fuckers actually named a movie that and I, I have to make fun of it. It's like my civic duty. He was in Gone Baby Gone, Manchester by the Sea, which is super fucking depressing, but it's a really good movie. Man, I liked it a lot. And he's going to be in the movie Oppenheimer, which I'm pretty excited about, but I'm, I'm tempering my expectations, I guess. So Eliza Dushku is in this movie and she plays Annabelle. She was in Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back right around this time. She was in True Lies way back when in the 90s as uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger's daughter. And she was in Bring It On, The New Guy. And then some of the TV work she did, she was a regular on Buffy the Vampire Slayer and the spinoff show Angel. And she was on a show called True Calling that I'm not familiar with. And she was on a show called Dollhouse that I guess I know about, but I don't really know what it's all about. Wes Bentley plays the character Matt. And if you're thinking, who the fuck is Wes Bentley? Well, he's the guy that's like obsessed with the plastic bag blowing in the breeze in American Beauty. And that's all I care to talk about from his filmography because that character is 
weird and just very bizarre. Okay, so last but not least of our abbreviated cast list is Luke Wilson. And he it seems like he kind of took this role at a very rare part of his career where he had some notable movies out, but not like enough to be to you know to make him a household name. I mean the Royal Tenenbaums and Legally Blonde were I think still in production or had just come out and he would have still you know he would have had to have shot this movie before it. He plays the character Father Jude and you know him from the movies like Old School Idiocracy, The Royal Tenenbaums, Blue Streak, which I love him in. I really need to go back to that movie because I love that movie. And Legally Blonde. Some casting notes. So James Marsden turned down the role of Sean, which was Casey Affleck's part, and he did that so he could portray Cyclops and X-Men. What do you think? Do you, do you think he he's thankful that he made that call? I think he should be. So a basic plot synopsis is, a woman is racked with guilt after being the driver in a car accident that results in the death of a boyfriend she had such vanilla feelings about that she couldn't even reciprocate an I love you before he died. Yeah, that's right. That's That was the short of it because... That's what I wanted to fucking point out is that she couldn't even be like, oh yeah, I love you. And oh, by the way, I guess I'm going to kind of make out with my ex-boyfriend in the car while you're away. Okay. Um, I couldn't believe this was a Lionsgate movie. It, it surprised me to see it was like a major studio, but I guess with the amount of people that we got in this movie, I, it, it's not entirely shocking. And they might've just picked up distribution rights or something. I get the feeling that under normal circumstances, I would have had every expectation for this movie to be at least decent. I, I wouldn't have expected it to be terrible, but you get these, you know, this lead actress that I've never fucking heard of in my life. And it's like, what are we doing here? You know, what? who is this? Why did you give her a shot? You know, was there somebody out there that could have gotten this role and could have elevated it? But who knows? Maybe that person didn't exist at the time. They're doing this weird thing during the opening credits of this movie where they're showing these brief glimpses of it raining. Like you, you're looking at like pavement, I guess, and it's raining. And all of a sudden it's like it's blood red, like a red filter. But you're seeing like this girl interacting with her boyfriend and her parents and all this shit, you know, and it's like she's just kind of, you know, doing whatever. And, you know, it's this this undertone of like, oh, God, what dangers await her or whatever. And I would say like a little ways into the movie, it was looking like so far so good. It was, you know, th there was a shitty party scene and then they're like, oh, yeah, let's go outside for no reason. And they go out and they have their little moment with each other. And I feel like at every turn, like, and this was early in the movie, I could not, like, you know, usually if you see somebody and they have that, like, star power, you can't forget their face and you can't forget how they are. But it's like, with her, this girl is just, she's a nobody. Like, she doesn't, she's not, you know, wiggling free any emotions from me, you know what I mean? It's not, she's not drawing me in at all. And I just, I, I can't really understand it, but so... There's a reason that bad guy from American Beauty, which I'm going to call him bad guy throughout this fucking movie. So just buckle the fuck up. He's not in more stuff because he he's not as creepy in this movie as he is in American Beauty. And 100% he is creepy in American Beauty. But like he's still creepy in this movie. And it's like he he's not like an accessible, likable guy. You know, he's not he's not cool. He's not fun. He doesn't have a sense of humor. I mean, that's I would say that was 
you know, before I forget in my my criticisms of this movie, the biggest issue with this movie is that there are like almost no comic relief moments. It's like all serious the whole fucking way through and it just does not work well for me. So I did notice, and I mentioned this in my plot synopsis, but it, there's nothing more cliche than one person saying that th they love the other person and that other person does not reciprocate. It's it's terrible. Like, it's just, it's so overdone. It's just like, oh God, he didn't say I love you back. Oh my God. And I mean, they go... They go to this other location, you know, they go to a second location and it's a little bit darker of a party, you know, it's a little less, less lighthearted and it's more spooky and stuff. And that is evidenced by the generic metal music that is playing when they're walking around at the party and it's just, it's so fucking stupid. Oh my God. And so, as I mentioned, you know, they, at one point, main girl and bad guy, they get a little moment together and you find out that they are like exes or whatever and bad guy still likes her or loves her or whatever and so he basically like coerces a kiss out of her but it's like you know I haven't been kissed involuntarily many a time but what if I told you that I would pull away if I was getting kissed by somebody that I didn't want to be kissed by and I would just fucking leave it at that and tell them no you don't fucking do that that's not okay like I get you have to you have to take the leap if you're a person that wants wants to kiss somebody else it's not super desirable to ask permission to do so so it's like i get that you're gonna go for the kiss but it's like as soon as as soon as the other person backs away it's done you, you call it you know and and it's funny because this is where i like came across my theory about you know Movies like this being rated so poorly on IMDb, you know, when I'm looking around trying to find bad movies and I find this one and it's like, what, you know, like what happens, it seems like is you get bad movies and there are some movies that it's like, it's cool to say that they're bad. So you make them like some of the worst movies of all time, according to IMDb. But then you take the other ones and it's like, they are mediocre or better than average. And people try and make them some of the best movies ever made on IMDb. IMDb. And it's like, okay, I mean, it doesn't really, it doesn't really do much for the integrity of the, the rating site. And when they, you know, when the two of them kiss, you know, and they, it's like Casey Affleck sees bad guy and uh, main girl kiss and Casey Affleck's dating main girl. And so he's all pissy about it. And she's like, no, it wasn't like that. You know, like the fucking total backpedaling bullshit that people like to do. And at this point, I'm thinking to myself, okay, I've already looked at the cast list. Casey Affleck is number two on the list. And it's, it's not like Casey Affleck was that big of a name by 2001. Like he had been in Goodwill Hunting and a couple other things, but like he's in American Pie in 1999 after Goodwill Hunting has been out for two years and he is this bit part that is, has like a single scene, you know? So it's like, yeah, I'm not really buying that that's what, you know, that I'm like, he's gotta be coming back in this movie, you know what I mean? And that's gotta be the plot of this movie is it's like he dies and comes back or whatever. And I get the immediate feeling that that 
the main girl and uh she she's taken you know she's getting behind the wheel it's raining out and you know it's it was foreshadowed in the opening credits that it seemed as though something bad was going to happen when it rained and so lo and behold they get into a car accident and you know the car goes off the edge of the embankment or whatever you want to call it and it's just it's all over the fucking place with this girl and she's freaking out and you know you don't really know what the fuck's going on you just know you know it's like you assume you're just gonna find out who didn't make it you know and it's like yeah I'm, I'm willing to bet Casey Affleck didn't make it and so she she is like super depressed and she's with Eliza Dushku and she goes into her med- medicine cabinet and she's got like three orange pill bottles and she takes one of them and grabs a pill from it and Eliza Dushku's like oh god what do they got you on now or something like that and and she like takes the pill and Eliza Dushku's like mmm zombie food and I'm like okay you clearly have a fundamental misunderstanding of what zombies are all about because that's that's not that's not a thing zombies do not eat pills that's that's not their thing and i'm not gonna get into it with you but watch night of the living dead because it's it's definitely free somewhere on streaming (laughs) so there is this person that main girl sees and she's just kind of like creeped out i she's very it's a woman i'm like 90 percent confident in saying that she's a woman but she's very androgynous you know she she's just she doesn't look you know she's she's got like short hair and you know all this stuff and she's just got this creepy scary look on her face and stuff and it's like they just she reminded me so much of you remember the chick at the end of Ghostbusters when you know they they're basically about to have their final showdown with you know, the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man. And this chick appears and, like, asks them to choose the form of their enemy or whatever. That's what she reminds me of. That's what the chick looks like. So they keep having these dream sequences in this movie where it's, like, things are bloody everywhere. And, like, you know, she's got blood on her, the main girl does. Or there's blood under, like, a table leg or, you know, weird shit. And I'm just like, oh, okay. I know what's going on here. And... (laughs) I'm like, I'm immediately thinking this is an unreliable narrator type situation. I think this is, this girl is, she is like, she's either the dead one or she's under or, you know, she's, she's dreaming or something, but like nothing about it jives. You know, it doesn't really fucking add up at all. And it's like nothing that she's experiencing and freaking out about is happening in front of anybody else at all. And she's just losing her mind about it. About it and it's just it, it's that evident like a half an hour into this movie that that's what's going on and at one point she says she, you know main girl says to bad guy you think i'm crazy i'm not crazy everybody else is and you know who tends to say things like that a literal crazy person that's that's what that is and neither of the two actors that we're seeing you know so it's bad guy and main girl like throughout this fucking movie even though Casey Affleck is second build and he keeps popping up here and there, it's like he's dead. And so you're thinking like he's a ghost or something, but neither of these actors are really relatable or terribly likable in any way whatsoever at any point in this movie. They they never do anything to win me over. And I, I 
pointed out at this point, you know, specifically, I have no see, I've seen no concrete evidence that anything has happened to her that she's acting like. Like this creepy figure tried to drown her in a pool and all of a sudden they just stop. They don't fucking drown her. You know, and I put unreliable narrator type thing. I'm calling it now. And so this is, this is not very far into the movie. I mean, it's, I'm sure somebody else would have probably called it sooner, but I'm not super good at this kind of thing. So, uh, the killer is not a particularly scary looking person that she keeps seeing. It's like, it basically looks like they have like a clear plastic mask on their face and it just, it doesn't look very cool. It's, it, it doesn't look scary. It's just, they're trying to fucking do the, scream I know what you did last summer whatever and it just keeps coming back up over and over again that it's like this is this is a delusional narrator this is a person who is not to be trusted I don't buy a word of what they're saying and I mean there's a scene where they're in a bar and like there's a scene where she is like sleeping or dreaming or whatever she's doing and bad guy is like still trying to put the moves on her and she like has sex with bad guy and by the way she fucking she has sex with him and then answers the door in nothing but a bed sheet which who the fuck does that? And it's Eliza Dushku who is dating bad guy, by the way, if I didn't mention that. And it's like, what? Okay. And so eventually, you know, like all this shit goes down and, you know, there, Eliza Dushku has been, you know, doing other shit. And then all of a sudden it's like, there's no explanation that I noticed that gives any reason as to why Eliza Dushku comes back and is like hanging around with them. But it's, it is kind of what it is, you know, it's, it, all of a sudden they're back at this bar and Eliza Dushku and main girl get into an argument and like main girl slaps Eliza Dushku so hard that she flies into another table and knocks it over. And it's just, it's so over the top. It's, it's just, I, I didn't buy it for a fucking minute. Uh, and there's, you know, there's a big scene where uh, main girl goes to the locker room and then all of a sudden she's getting chased by the killer and, you you know, the killer, they're like, they, they run into the supply room and uh, there are fluorescent tubes on the the workbench and one of them falls off and alerts the, the killer to her presence and she runs out with one of the tubes and she's like stabbing the killer with a fluorescent tube. And I was like thinking immediately when I saw this, I was like, I mean, you could try and stab somebody with a fucking broken off fluorescent tube, but guess what? It's not going to fucking go over well for you. It's just, it's not as fun as it might seem like it would be because I, I've tried to handle those fluorescent tubes. They are brittle as all fucking get out, especially once they've been broken already. And it's like, yeah, you might do some damage, you know, some, some low level damage, but you're not going to do anything too crazy. And that and that was the worst part is it's like this fluorescent tube thing this this confrontation she has with the killer is like supposed to be the high point of terror in the movie and it is fucking weak i mean it is bad i mean i ugh. I didn't, I didn't like it at all. Bad guy, you know, we see after this, you know, she, he, 
you know, she tells him that she wants him to take her home. And, you know, they're they're going, they're on their way. And he stops somewhere. And you see a shot of his car. And aside from the green top, it looks like one of those uh, goon cars that the Joker's goons have in uh, Batman from 1989. And I thought that was kind of nifty because, you know, there was nothing else to talk about with this fucking movie. And... So they're at this place that he decides to stop, and it's like this same dark party that they were in before where the shitty metal music was playing, and she's like running away and trying to seek safety in this fucking party house and she runs down into the basement like that's a fucking good idea you know like yeah okay yeah that's where all your fucking your serenity is is just hanging out in the fucking basement at a rave you know and then the the androgynous chick comes back and it's like at this point you know She's with Eliza Dushku, and it's like, if at this point you don't realize that there's a dream type thing going on, you're not fucking paying attention, and I barely was paying attention. And, and it just, it seems like such an obvious twist to give, you know, like, it's like, oh yeah, it's not really real, whoopee fucking shit. And then, you know, it's like, at the end of this movie... You remember in, like, The Sixth Sense, which uh, I give that example because that's a good example of a good twist done right. And, you know, there's all these callbacks to shit that was happening in the movie that you weren't even paying attention to to realize what the twist was. And in this movie, it was a bunch of nonsensical shit that you, if you would have went back and not had the fucking, you know, other than it being a very obvious plot twist, if you wouldn't have had all that stuff to go on to know it was a plot twist, you wouldn't have had any reason to believe that any of those things were what they were played out to be you know it's like there's a scene where she's in school and she asks her professor why you know he didn't post her grade for the test and the professor was like it's not that kind of test and then it like comes back that like, oh she's in the hospital she's under the fucking knife and she asked her doctor that with you know some level of confusion in her voice and the chick the the ghostbusters chick from you know the androgynous one she is in this hospital bed next to main girl and she's like reaching out and she's still talking ridiculously like she's got this weird fucking voice and i don't know what they were fucking going for with it but it's like the the dumbest part about the movie is like okay so it turns out at the end of the movie that casey affleck was actually alive the whole time and that i think it's like eliza dushku dies and like she was the one that died in the car accident and it's like it's not clear because they don't make main girl too banged up so it's like you're not going under the fucking knife in the emergency room if you're fucking lucid and you're like talking and you're like aware of what's going on you know it's like you fucking banged your head like oh yeah they're gonna fucking bandage you up and then send you on your way tell you not to fucking sleep or whatever if you feel like you have concussion symptoms or something it's but it doesn't make any sense to me and it's the way they close out this movie that's it's so sloppy and lazy and i just i don't do super well some of the parts that i will praise about this movie is it doesn't look like it was shot by a complete hack i guess that's the only praise i have uh the killer was fucking weak as far as criticism the whole it was basically a lucid dream after an accident with a bunch of shitty crap to uh make it all fit kind of thing that was not good and then the lead actress was annoying as shit and i'm glad she's 
not in shit else. And Bad Guy from American Beauty was also terrible. It was just, it was not my idea of a good time. I couldn't find any fucking trivia worth talking about on this movie other than that bit about James Marsden and the casting. The runtime of this movie was 84 minutes. It had a $17 million budget. Its worldwide gross to date was $4.3 million. Uh, the IMDb rating was 3.8. The Rotten Tomato critic score was 4%. Rotten Tomato audience score was 26%. And my personal rating for this movie is 0.5 out of 5 stars. Yes, that's right. You didn't think I could go lower. I was holding that in my back pocket for just such a stinker. This movie had, I mean, if there wouldn't have been, I would have given this movie a 0 out of 5 if, if it wouldn't have had any notable stars in it. Like, if there would have been nobody I recognized, I wouldn't have had anything to grab onto at all. And I barely had that with Luke Wilson and Casey Affleck. Like, holy fuck. So, you know... I'm doing this, I'm trying to make, I want to cover some classic movies as well, you know, so I've got, I've got the favorites, I've got the new to me episodes, and I've got the bad movie episodes, and I think occasionally, but not with great regularity, I will do classics, and I will just cover those classics, and, you know, just talk about ones I want to talk about, and shit, maybe I won't even release them, maybe I'll just put them all together, and keep them all to myself, you know? Because I mean, that's, I'm really my, my most avid listener. You know what I mean? I, I listen to my episodes 100% multiple times because I'm a fucking loser and I can't get enough of it. I just love what I'm talking about and it's, it's the good stuff. So anyway, thank you all for tuning in. I have been Brandon Griffiths with Brandon at Random Reviews. As always, let me know if you'd like to see any movies get covered on this podcast and I can certainly entertain the idea. I'm not necessarily going to do it, but please let me know if you have any critiques or questions or comments and I will respond to them in the order that they were received at my soonest convenience. Thank you and have a good day. Don't watch these movies. Brandon at Random Reviews is performed, written, directed, produced, and edited by Brandon Griffiths. Theme music is performed by Augusto Diniz from Fiverr. 